I want to start in Mark chapter 9 this morning, uh, the transfiguration. You remember that the Lord took three of his disciples up into the mountain, and there his face was transfigured, it changed, and his clothes also, they became shining, exceeding white as snow. Elijah and Moses joined them at this auspicious occasion. And then, from the cloud, God the Father spoke to them. He said, this is my beloved son, hear him. Think about that for a moment. The Lord God, God the Father, takes the trouble to speak audibly to human beings with this very brief two-point sermon. This is my beloved son, hear him. I want to think briefly about those words there, hear him, because these words are important. They're spoken not just to those disciples present there on the Mount of Transfiguration, but of course, spoken to us as well. Let us pause. God the Father says to us, hear him, hear my son, hear Jesus. And of course, this doesn't just mean that we should uh, enable the, 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 the sound of God's voice to uh, vibrate our eardrums. The word hear has more depth to it than that, doesn't it? It means listen to my son. Take in what my son says. Take seriously. Give weight to the words of my son. Obey my son. You could, uh, you could look forward to chapter 14 of Mark. There's no need. But in there, we see a good example of Peter not taking this advice. In chapter 14, um, the Lord is going and is now very close to his de- death. And he is talking in the, mount- in the Garden of Gethsemane about what is about to happen. And he says that um, the, uh, the, the shepherd will be smitten and the sheep will be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, although all shall be offended, yet will not I. You see, Peter heard the bit about the prediction of him letting the Lord down. And he completely missed the bit about the Lord rising again from the dead. The far more important point you might think. Well, we have a tendency to do this as the disciples did. We must learn from their example, whether in a positive or a negative way. We could go back to uh, chapter 8 of Mark and verse 15. Now, this is uh, another example of the disciples not hearing the Lord. And we should pause here again. We should ask ourselves the question, if the disciples had this tendency to miss the point, if the disciples had this tendency to uh, uh, not hear what the Lord was saying, And if uh, God the Father in heaven has said, this is my beloved son, hear him, listen to him, then I think there is a point for us here to understand. The disciples were in a a ship, a small boat, a fishing boat, crossing 
uh, the lake and the Lord Jesus Christ uh, seemingly out of nothing in verse 15 charges them saying take heed beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod and they reasoned among themselves saying it is because we have no bread they'd forgotten to bring the provisions with them that was uh, that very very uh, prosaic earthly consideration was on their minds the Lord says something very profound very important and instead of listening to him they completely miss the point uh, they they skip over it uh, they think no it's something to do with the fact that we haven't brought anything to eat of course that was not what the Lord was concerned about and we have the tendency to do this as well I'm sure you know I'm sure you understand People sometimes frustrate us, don't they, when we don't feel they are listening. Our children especially. How many times on a Sunday morning, it's time to go to church. Come on, get your shoes on. Let's get out of the door. Let's get in the car. It's time to leave. And they hear, but they don't really hear. They listen, but they don't obey. And it's frustrating. I can see some children's heads moving guiltily. But we all know how these things are, don't we? We imagine that scenario in the classroom where the teacher is starting to lose control a little bit and there are 25 or 30 children there and they are talking amongst themselves and they are passing notes or whatever it is that children do these days, I don't know. Um, but the teacher wants them to listen. And she might pause for dramatic effect. That sometimes works. Or she might raise her voice. Or she might slam, uh, well in my day it was the blackboard rubber down on the desk. The whiteboard pen I suppose it is now, or whatever it is. And she's trying to get the attention of the children. What, what, what would you do in, a, in, in extremis? If you were really trying to get a very important point across to somebody and it just seemed as if they would not listen, would you grab them by the shoulders? Would you put your face close up to theirs? Would you look into their eyes and say, listen to me, listen to me? There was something of that in what the Lord God says. He says, listen to my beloved son. You have a tendency, you disciples, and you have a tendency, you my people, Christians throughout the age, not to listen carefully enough to miss the point, to go off on a tangent. But uh, you, all you need to do is come back to the very word of God and listen and heed and obey the word of God. And that will be like a lamp to your feet. Let us therefore look at what the Lord Jesus Christ says here in this verse and look at it carefully. He charged them saying, verse 15, chapter 8, take heed... Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What does he mean by that? The word leaven is not particularly familiar to us, but it's easy to describe what it means. It has to do with the yeast that goes into the dough when you're making bread or any other dough product which causes it to rise. There is a chemical reaction which causes carbon dioxide bubbles to expand and cause the dough to get bigger. If you've ever made a bread at home, or if you've ever seen your parents make bread at home, you will be familiar with this, that it grows and it gets uh, greater in volume. And this leaven, this yeast, 
is a very familiar word picture to the children of Israel. Around about the time of the Lord's death, of course, they were celebrating the Passover, but also the feast of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. This feast was so familiar to every child who grew up in the Jewish religion, like Christmas to us. This feast of unleavened bread. And it looked back to that time of Exodus, when they escaped one night, led by Moses, out of the land of Egypt, on the journey toward the promised land. And you remember, after those nine plagues, the heart of Pharaoh was still hardened, and he would not let them go. But when the tenth plague came, the death of the firstborn, then they were thrust out of the land. And the Egyptians came out of their houses with gold and silver and jewellery and precious things and shoved them into the hands of the, of the Jews and told them to get out. They were so terrified, all of them having been bereaved. And they left in such a hurry that they didn't have time for their dough to rise, for their bread to become leaven. And so they ate flat bread on that momentous occasion. And the Lord instigated it as a memorial every year until Christ fulfilled it many years later. So the children knew about this unleavened bread. The, the leaven was viewed as something which was small, but which affected the whole. It was viewed as something which had an effect beyond its appearance and its, its size. It was something which got into the dough and transformed it. And it was often a picture of sin. It was a picture of that sin which comes into our hearts and ruins everything, pervades everything, changes everything for the worse. So when the Lord says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and beware the leaven of Herod, he is saying, beware that small thing, that mistake which creeps in and then spreads throughout the whole, ruining everything. In other places, he speaks not of the leaven of Herod, but the leaven of the Sadducees. And uh, uh, Herod and the Sadducees were uh, political allies. What was their leaven? We'll talk briefly about that first. Well, the Herodians were the party that were allowed to rule as puppet kings uh, under Rome and under Caesar. They were royalty. Of course, they didn't have ultimate power because they were vassals of the Roman Empire, But nevertheless, they were rich and powerful within their own land and within their own nation. The Sadducees were that religious sect that didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. So we can imagine, we know, the mistake that they made. We know that they lived for this life. They had no fear of a judgment to come. They didn't look for reward in heaven because they didn't believe in heaven. They didn't look for punishment in hell because they didn't believe in hell. They looked to make the most that they could out of this life. And therefore they lived godless lives. They paid lip service to religion, but they were godless. And we know of the Herodians and their great sins of incest, of adultery, and of violence and bloodshed, of injustice and of avarice. We can understand the leaven of the Sadducees and the leaven of Herod. But I'd like to suggest, I'd like to hope 
that the leaven of Herod is not such a danger for us here in this church. I'm sure that if anybody amongst the membership of this church started to sin in that direction, the church officers would be on the case very quickly and they would be reprimanded and spoken to and repentance would be called for because we are religious people. We shun that sort of open immorality. We look at that as being of the world. And it is. It is the leaven of Herod. So I don't propose to speak on that subject this morning. But there is here this leaven of the Pharisees. Now this leaven is much closer to home. This leaven is different. It is not irreligion. It is excessive religion, if you like. You know, I'm sure, that the Pharisees delighted in their outward keeping of the law, their outward shows of religiosity, of the loud uh, praying on the street corners, of the special clothes that they used to wear, of the ostentatious way that they would give into the treasury in the temple. Of the superior way that they would shun and push out of the synagogue and out of their houses and out of society. Any who they felt were not pleasing to God. Gentiles or sinners of the Jewish nation. That was the direction in which they went. But the Lord called them hypocrites. And when he says here in chapter 8, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, surely he has in mind this example that we read, uh, that the pastor read for us here in chapter 7. The Pharisees came together, and certain of the scribes which came to Jerusalem, and they saw some of his disciples eat bread before they'd washed their hands. Now, this is not a matter of uh, hygiene or of COVID protocol. This is a, a religious observance. They felt that there ought to be some running water going over their hands uh, in order to please God. How that exactly works, I'm not sure. Perhaps lost in the midst of time. But uh, the writer of the Gospel of Mark goes into some uh, detail about the fact that they were very, very keen on this sort of thing. In verse 4, except they wash their hands, they eat not, and many other things there be which they have received to hold the washing of cups and pots and brass vessels and of tables. This was important to them. This petty rule-keeping to them was their way of showing their holiness, their devotion to God. They felt it was their route to heaven, their way to please God. It was their righteousness. But the Lord God, Jesus Christ incarnate, calls their bluff. And he says, no. No, you're making a mistake. You're putting your own traditions above the word of God. Think of that for a moment. Your own traditions above the word of God. In fact, he says in verse 13, you're making the word of God of none effect through your traditions which you have delivered. He says, let's look at the word of God. Let's look at what Moses said. On Mount Sinai, when he was given uh, the word from God the Father, the Ten Commandments, he said, Honour thy father and thy mother, 
That's the word of God. But you've got this strange get-out clause, whereby you say, yes, but of course I would honour my mother and my father, but actually I'm so holy that I'm going to give anything that should have gone to them, I'm going to give it to God. And in so doing, I will please God. It doesn't please God. God has told you to honour your mother and father, to look after them. At its most basic level, especially for people in those days, it meant take care of them when they cannot take care of themselves due to a great advancing age, when they cannot any longer earn their own living, when they need care. You are to care for them, says God, when he says, honour your father and your mother. But the Pharisees had invented a rule which got them out of keeping the word of God. The Muslims have their holy book, the Quran. But they also have the teaching of imams and elders throughout the centuries, which they call the Hadith. And in their religion, the Hadith often trumps and is more important than, and is more taken into consideration than their holy scripture, although we know it not to be a holy scripture in truth. The Muslims, therefore, make this same mistake, that they put the traditions of the fathers in the Hadith above what they think is the word of God. The Jews, to this day, make the same mistake. They have the real word of God in the Pentateuch, which they call the Torah. But they also have the teaching of the rabbis down through the ages, which they call the Talmud, the traditions of the fathers to which they give enormous weight. So the Jews make this mistake as well. The Roman Catholics have the whole of the word of God, but they also have papal bulls, church traditions, and many other teachings which are not in the Bible. Teachings which they place above the scriptures. So the Roman Catholics have made that same mistake as well. Church of England, again, have the word of God. But they also have their synods and their committee meetings and their conferences where they seek to do things, in some cases, which are above the word of God. So they make the same mistake. So when God the Father in heaven says... This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the Lord Jesus Christ says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, and when we see that that mistake of putting the traditions of the fathers above the word of God has made in almost every religion and every church, we would do well, I think, to ask ourselves the question, are we making this same mistake? Do we put our traditions above the word of God. Let's ask ourselves this question. What does God want from us? We read in Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. Which is the first commandment of all? And in verse 29 the Lord answers. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. 
And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. We must hear the Lord Jesus Christ when he says that. And when he says, beware the leaven of of the Pharisees. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He does not say, if you love me, add to my commandments. That is what the Pharisees did. They added to the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ, of God the Father. They required more strict keeping of certain laws than God himself required. Do we make that mistake? Are we in some cases more stringent than our King, Jesus Christ, requires? That is what the leaven of the Pharisees entails. Let us ask ourselves the question, what this might look like for us. We start with the example that the Lord Jesus Christ gave. Honour thy father and thy mother. At its most basic level, that means care for your mother and your father. Now, in our society, we have care homes, we have professionals, we have the NHS, we have sheltered housing. And in all of those ways, our elderly parents can be cared for without us having to be on hand 24 hours a day. But that was not the case when this was written. You had to really care for your parents as they declined in their elder years. And the Pharisees made excuses, religious excuses for not doing that. We, I suppose, we could say, I cannot look after my mother and my father because I have to go to church. I've got Sunday school lessons that need teaching. Uh, I have visitation needs to be done. No, the Lord has commanded you to honour your mother and father. And there may be many other pressing and important things to do, but they cannot trump this command or take it out of the Bible. I'm sure none of us would look to do that. This is difficult, isn't it? Because whatever I say is going to touch on a raw nerve. So what I will do is I will use uh, a a slightly silly example. And I hope you'll forgive me for doing this. I have no wish to be uh, trivial, but I'm sure you'll understand when I explain myself. Let us imagine that in our neck of the woods, 150, 200 years ago, a well-respected minister in our connection stood up and preached from the book of Exodus on the construction of the tabernacle. And let us suppose that he notices in the instructions that the Lord God gives to Moses in the construction of the tabernacle that there is a preponderance of red and blue and purple in the colours that are to be used in the curtains and the hangings and the fitments. Now let us imagine that he goes a bit too far. Let us imagine that he preaches that 
these colours are clearly the Lord's favourite colours. Forgive me, I don't mean to be trivial, and I'm sure you'll understand why I'm, why I'm using this example, which can seem silly, but I hope will highlight the point. Imagine then that others took that view as well. And when they went to their wardrobes on Sunday morning, they had a tendency to go for the red and the blue and the purple ties. Until it got to the point where everyone was wearing the red and the blue and the purple ties. And the cushions uh, in the pews were, were the correct color. And the children wore uh, purple shirts. And uh, maybe they started buying purple carriages and buggies uh, and, uh, and cars in, in years to come. And it was just one of those things that that particular church did. Whenever you would go and visit that church, you would see quite a lot of purple. And the ladies would wear purple dresses and purple hats. And the gents would wear purple shirts and purple ties. And as generation passed generation, this tradition became entrenched. And it became normalized. And, and perhaps every now and again there was an article or a book or a sermon uh, referring back. And people said, well, clearly the Lord did prefer those colors in Exodus to, to the yellows and the greens. Therefore, perhaps we should too. But what if it then goes a bit further and you get to the point where people are uncomfortable worshipping in churches where people are not wearing the purple shirts? And when churches think about calling a minister and they have a visiting preacher turn up, if he turns up in a green car rather than a purple one, judgments are immediately made. What if it gets to the point where the church members start looking down and even doubting the salvation of those dressed in the wrong colours. You can see how it could happen. You could see how those traditions could build up. You could see how, if we are not careful of the level of the Pharisees, we can start to look on these external things as being very indicative of the state of a person's heart. And of course, we don't need to go to that uh, daft example. There are many that we could touch on. There are many who have decided not to touch a drop of alcohol. And that's fair enough. That's a, a wise and a sensible thing, and one mustn't go against one's conscience. There are others who have decided that that is not required by the word of God, and therefore they will enjoy the occasional glass of wine whilst never getting drunk. We must come to our own conclusions on these things. But what we mustn't do is we mustn't go beyond the word of God, which is full of the blessings of the fruit of the, of the, of the vine, and say that anyone who doesn't agree with me on this subject, I doubt their salvation. They cannot be a member of our church. They cannot be somebody we stand beside in the gospel. That is the leaven of the Pharisees. The trouble is, so many of these issues are important. They are very important. We are very concerned and careful about the things which we sing and the way that we conduct our sung worship and uh, the, the Bible version that we use. These things are not trivial. They are important. But they are not more important than holiness. And if our religion becomes all about these external matters, then we have a bad infection 
of the leaven of the Pharisees. We dress in a certain way. And perhaps we would be very uncomfortable to come to church in flip-flops and, uh, and shorts. We can understand that. It would be difficult for us, perhaps, some of us, to come to church without wearing a, a collar and a tie. We have certain things that we would do on a Sunday and certain things that we wouldn't do on a Sunday. But beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Do not be a hypocrite. Do not come to the point where you judge people on these externals and you forget about the heart. Do not come to the point where you judge yourself on these externals. Pharisees said our Lord were like whitened sepulchres. Outside they looked pristine. Inside they were full of dead men's bones and corruption. That is the leaven of the Pharisees. That is the danger which we face if we give too much weight to these things. And I'm not saying these things aren't important. Please don't misunderstand me. But the Lord God says clearly here, do not make your own traditions, even if those traditions are good traditions, do not make them of more import than the word of God. Certainly do not let them cancel out the word of God. Reverence is an important issue. We believe you cannot worship God without reverence. You must come before him in reverence. You must understand that he is high and holy, that you are low and a sinner, and you must come with humility and respect, and if you cannot do that, you cannot worship God. Of course you can't. But what does reverence look like? Well, you can't see it. It's in the heart. There are certain indicators, perhaps, that we have taken to think might suggest that reverence is, 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 is present. We like in our tradition, do we not? A bit of quiet before the service. A bit of decorum. We like a certain pace in our sung worship. We like to dress carefully. And maybe these things reflect the reverence in our hearts. But you know, there are some who come wearing the sober shirt and tie and suit, singing the right hymns at the right pace, but with no reverence in their hearts. We cannot tell. We cannot see it. There are others, and we know there are many churches in this county alone, which would make us a little uncomfortable, perhaps. There's a, a lot of noise before the service. The children are running around. People seem very pleased to see each other. There's a bit of laughing and joking going on. And perhaps the minister has to call the place to order before he starts. Does that mean that they have no reverence in their hearts? That is for God to judge. 
but I'm sure those places have true worship in them as well. So let us not put our traditions above the word of God. But let me now move to the practicalities of this, because we will see a profound effect if we are affected by the leaven of the Pharisees. We saw it in the Pharisees, and we can imagine it in ourselves as well. First of all, there will be personal pride. If we are affected by the leaven of the Pharisees, we will feel that we're doing a good job of keeping all the rules, that we dress the right way, that we perform the right way, that we do the right sacraments. And that will cause to puff us up. That was the problem the Pharisees had. They had pride. They thought they were pleasing God. And if we suffer in the same way, we will think we are better than others. We will look down on the people who come to church in their shorts. We will look down on the people who have 78 musical instruments to accompany their sung worship. We will look down on the people who use inferior translations of the Bible. And that is not good. We should boast in nothing but Christ crucified. If we find ourselves puffed up because we believe we do church better than anyone else, there's a red flag. Secondly, as we think about the negative consequences of the lever of the Pharisees, churches that suffer from this are going to have a lot of false assurance and false converts. Because the children that grow up in those families, in that church, in those churches, they'll know exactly how to behave to please their parents. They'll know exactly which words to say, how to dress, which rotors to be on. They'll know exactly how to trick, con, hoodwink. No, I don't think any of those things. They'll just naturally think that doing those things makes them a convert. And so we will find, if we go too far down this route, that our churches are full of people who look right. You'd see them walking down the street on a Sunday morning or on a Monday morning. You'd say, they look like Christians. They look like believers. But all they're doing is aping the traditions of the fathers. We cannot tell anything about their hearts. And then... There's division along false lines. We all will not go to that conference because they don't wear the purple shirts. We don't want to hear what they have to say. Oh, that person has invited somebody into their pulpit who wore a yellow tie. Surely, surely, we are not going to disobey the commandment of God to love one another because of these false traditions. And then, of course, it's massively distracting. If we're going to conferences and writing books and preaching sermons about which colour ties we should wear, we've been distracted from the job in hand, which is holiness, which is Christ-likeness, which is the production of the fruit of the Spirit, which is the preaching of the Gospel. How happy the devil must be if he sees us tied up in knots, wrangling about our traditions, neglecting the word of God. 
You'll see a lack of real conversions as well, as well as the fake conversions of the people who just decide, yes, I will please my mother and father. I will remain part of this uh, group that I've grown up in by going to be baptised and I can persuade the minister because I know exactly the kind of externals and the things I need to say and he won't inquire into the state of my heart. But also, we commit the cardinal sin of our day and age. Have you noticed that a politician can cheat on his wife, can fiddle his expenses, can go back on his word, can be found to be a liar and all be forgiven. But if he's a hypocrite, that's the end of his career. Hypocrisy is the capital crime of public life these days. And you know what? When people come in off the streets, they don't have a Christian background, they can smell hypocrisy a mile off. If they can see a bunch of people keeping arcane rules, but having no love... Dishonest, gossipy, backstabbers, they will smell that. They will see that. And they will reject that. The other problem that we see, and this is a terrible one, is that if we have too much emphasis on these traditions... It's very easy for the wolves to come in and steal the sheep's clothing. When I've seen this in my own life, oh, the pain. Oh, the horror. The men who for many years were unfaithful to their wives. And nobody noticed because they upheld the traditions. The men who did unspeakable things to the young people in their care were taken to prison. Nobody noticed. Because the externals were all there. You see, the wolves can come in and they can ape us, they can copy us. You cannot fake true holiness, true heart religion, But you can fake the traditions. You can fake the externals. And I say to my own shame, it tends to this partisanship. I have seen men, I have seen elders abuse their wives verbally just completely cut them off at the knees multiple times and I've excused it in my own mind because that man's on my team that man's in my gang that man's got the same traditions as me we we wear the purple ties and therefore he must be okay and I say this to my own shame I have overlooked Shocking things for the sake of my traditions. The leaven of the Pharisees ultimately leads to the death of the church. God Almighty is telling us to pay close attention to his son. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ, his son, is telling us to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. In essence, he is saying, don't make the mistake they made. Do not maximize the external and minimize the internal. Your religion must not be one of perception, but one of a changed heart. If we go to the epistles of John, uh, we won't do it now, but you see in those epistles the hallmarks of those who are truly saved. Love of the brethren. Tender conscience about sin. A love of the word of God. A process and a desire to progress in sanctification and holiness. A genuine victory over a sin. A desire to meet together and join in voice to praise God. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The love and the joy and the peace. The long-suffering. The kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the self-control, the patience, the forgiveness. These are the hallmarks of true believers. Not how we dress. Not which kind of church we are in. Important as those things are. We have this tendency to oversimplify. In Animal Farm, are you familiar with the book Animal Farm? Allegory. The farmyard animals talk to each other and form a government and rebel against the human beings. They have this simple rule handed down by the ruling pigs to all of the other creatures. Four legs good, two legs bad. Simple. Everyone can remember that. The ducks and the chickens complain. And they have a codicil put in about wings. But they try and keep it as simple as possible. The rulers of the farmyard say, if anyone has got four legs, they are good. If anyone has got two legs, they are bad. And we do that in our churches. We massively oversimplify. Which version of the Bible do they use? Ah, oh, it must be good. Which version of the Bible do they use? Ah, oh, it must be suspect. There are holy people in this country who wear shorts to church. There are men and women in this country right now worshipping God in a way which is acceptable to him, which he takes pleasure in and by which he is glorified, who use the NIV. Although we feel our Bible is a superior translation, nevertheless, they are God's people. The Pharisees didn't like it when their hypocrisy was exposed. When the Lord Jesus told them that they were not pleasing him with their rule keeping, they were furiously angry and plotted to have him killed. I'm sure there are no Pharisees feeling that strongly here this morning, but I'm speaking to myself as well as to you. Because I confess that for many years of my Christian walk, the leaven of the Pharisees has been present in my heart and in my mind. You can't take yeast out of a batch of dough. But you can deal with the leaven of the Pharisees. By God's grace, 
if we recognize it, if we look for it in our own hearts and our own minds, if we examine ourselves carefully with the help of the Holy Spirit and prayerfully, the Lord will show us where we're going wrong. He'll show us where we have a little too much pride in the way that we do things. He'll show us where we are a little too unloving in our view of others. He'll show us where we're spending too much time and getting distracted on peripheral things, external things. He'll show us what really matters. Making progress in practical holiness. Having victory over the flesh. Of denying ourselves and following Jesus Christ. Of becoming more like him. Let's listen to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're all infected, of course, to one degree or another. How wonderful it would be if we could repent and turn and the Lord in his mercy open the windows of heaven, shower his blessing down upon us. But we must be humble. We must listen carefully. We must be honest with ourselves. We must examine ourselves. And our Saviour who loves us and the Holy Spirit that comforts us will guide us into these wise things.